Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to worship Jesus together with you on uh, this Easter Sunday. Uh, last Easter, we were, uh, we were in our homes. Uh, we were worshiping together <laughs> on screens uh, while myself, Josh, and Jordan, we were here streaming, leading, singing, uh, preaching to an empty room about an empty tomb. And it is obviously not an empty room today, um, but it is still most definitely an empty tomb. And so we are so excited uh, to, to just share with you just that message the implications of an empty tomb. Why, why does that space matter? Why does that place matter? Uh, why does it matter that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And that He conquered death? And that He conquered sin? And that, that we are celebrating that today? Because it's not just a story from 2,000 years ago that we just remember and think, okay, that's good, and it gives us a good reason to be able to gather today, and it gives us a good reason to dress up, and it gives us a good reason to take pictures and have egg hunts and do all those things. Like, why, why does the resurrection actually matter for us? And what has God done that brings Him so much glory that at the same time changes the trajectory of our lives it changes the day-to-day rituals of our lives. It literally defines for us everything about our life. Because all of human history hinges upon this one single event. It hinges upon this one single event. That's what I want to share with us today, is just why this message is so, so, so important for us. To understand and to grasp hold of and to not just celebrate once a year, but live every single day, live out these implications. And so I love the fact that uh, she just read our passage for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump right back into Luke chapter 24. This is the passage that we want to look at. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. And again, I do, I want to just talk about this idea of spaces and places because they do matter when it comes to Jesus so Luke 24, I want to read this for you again, because again, I don't want you to miss it. Starting in verse 1, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. That's why we get dressed up for Easter. If you, if you weren't aware, um, that's just kind of the theology behind it, alright? So it's, it's not an accident that we you know, get all dolled up for Easter. It's, it's biblical, alright? I don't know if that's true, but I like it. it just, that stood out to me this week when I was reading this. I was like, well, I mentioned dazzling apparel, alright? Anyways, it's, it's the only time you're going to see me like this. <laughs> Each year, it's, it's usually toned down quite a bit more. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. Which makes me ask the question, where is he? He's not here, where is he? But is risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and then on the third day rise. And so again, this is the foundation for our message today. Jesus, they run to this tomb where he's been buried now for two days. He's been dead for two days. They run to this tomb because that's where they believe he is. That's the place that they are going to find him. That's the space in which they are are, are going to continue to lament, continue to mourn, and continue to actually exercise out their funeral ceremony. Their rituals in which they go and prepare, again, spices in order to take care of the body of Jesus as, as he is dead and as he is in this tomb. Again, they're forgetting the fact that he's told them, on the third day, I'm going to rise. On the third day, I'm going to come back to life. I'm not going to be in that tomb. But yet, in their hopelessness up until this point, they're still operating off the fact that what they see physically and what they've experienced tangibly on Friday night was the fact that he was crucified and he died a death just like all criminals die in their day and age. And so they're believing at this moment that that's still where he's at. That's the place where he is. And so I actually want to kind of shift a little bit and I want to show you something else that's very interesting in Scripture that we see after the fact that He rises from the, day, the grave. And I want to show you this via the lens of another guy by the name of Apostle Paul. I know many of you have heard of the Apostle Paul. If you haven't heard of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul has contributed for us almost a third of our entire New Testament. Almost half of the books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest evangelists in the history of Christianity. I mean, he literally was the one who kick-started the the spread of the gospel, which really reached the entire Roman Empire, so much so that by the time 325 AD, just kind of the, the, the movements of the gospel spreading out It legalized Christianity within the Roman Empire because the majority of the Roman Empire had come to know Christ. And this was all kick-started from this guy named the Apostle Paul who took the Gospel out of Jerusalem and ultimately took it to the Gentiles. And so the Apostle Paul is an interesting character because he wasn't always the Apostle Paul. He wasn't always the guy who spread the Gospel. He wasn't always the guy who loved Jesus. He had a much different start. His start was Saul of Tarsus. This was his name. And Saul of Tarsus hated Christians. Saul of Tarsus hated Jesus. So much so that he would go from city to city in first century Jerusalem. He would go from city to city in the region, dragging out men, women, and children who believed in Jesus, who loved Jesus, who worshipped Jesus. He would drag them out and either imprison them or kill them. He was adamant against this movement of Christianity. Why? Because he was a Pharisee. All right? That just means he was very, very Jewish. All right? like he, he loved the law and he loved the traditions of the law. And he loved to follow them. And not only that, but the Pharisees loved to add rules to the rules. They wanted so much to stick close to just doing what they believed was right that they would also then condemn anybody who did not follow the law or follow their traditions or customs when it came to living out the Old Testament covenant in the Old Testament law. And so anyone that went contrary to that, they made sure that they condemned them, 
And they made sure that they dragged them out, that they threw them in prison. And absolutely, when Jesus comes on the scene, it's viewed as someone who is contradicting what they believe. Because they actually couldn't see that he wasn't contradicting, he was fulfilling everything that they believed. So Saul of Tarsus comes in, and he's persecuting Jesus, but we then see in Acts chapter 9, we see the complete transformation of Saul. We see as he's on the way to Damascus to literally drag out men and women and children and imprison them, on the way Jesus shows up and he stops them in his tracks. And he calls out from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I find that interesting because if you know anything about the meta-narrative of Scripture, and what I mean by the meta-narrative is what is the Bible showing us and teaching us from Genesis to Revelation? What's the great story of the Bible? And what we know from the great story of the Bible is it really is breaking down into four different categories. You've got creation, you've got fall, you've got redemption, and then you've got the consummation, which is the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things. And so if you know the whole Bible and the whole story when it comes to creation, that's our first two chapters. In the beginning, God. All right, God existed for all eternity, has always been. We can't really wrap our minds around that because it's outside of what we can understand. It's outside of time. In the beginning, God, already there, then creates the heavens and the earth. So He creates everything that we can know and see and perceive and taste and all the senses, all of those things. What we understand is the natural realm. The universe, everything that's included in it. God created the heavens and the earth. Included in that, He creates man. He creates man and He creates woman and He creates them to be in relationship with each other and to be in relationship with Him and to have work and to have purpose and to steward the creation in which God has given them. To enjoy all of it. That's literally our first two chapters and the Jewish term for that was shalom. It was peaceful. It was good. And then we get fall. They had one rule. Just one rule in the garden. In this place. In this space. They were allowed perfect union with God. Perfect communion with Him. Perfect interaction with Him. Completely unhindered access to God. And He just gave them one rule. And I think the one rule wasn't this like heavy-handed thing that I just want to give a rule because I like giving rules. I think it was to show us that ultimate submission to God leads us into the greatest glory and satisfaction that we will ever experience. And so the one rule in the garden was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat of it. If you do, you will die. You will be separated from this perfect place. You will be separated from this union with God. You'll be separated from relationship with Him. And yet what happens is, is they believe the lie of Satan who comes into the garden and tempts them and says, you know what? If God is as good as He says He is, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be equal to God? Don't you want to be God's? Then go eat of that tree. Have the knowledge that He has. And unfortunately, our first parents, Adam and Eve, believe the lie and they take part and they sin. And fall happens. Sin comes into the world and it fractures everything that we know. Relationship between man and woman begin to have strife now. Relationship between us and God is separated. So much so that God casts them out of the garden. He exiles them from their home, from their place, from their space. 
They have to now leave. And they no longer have access to God. They no longer are able to commune with Him and have unity with Him. And then that moves us into redemption. God's been working out a plan from Genesis 3 to Malachi in which He has established a law which determines what His requirements are in order to be in His presence. And the law essentially states that if you do everything according to the law, you'll be perfect. You'll be perfect. And so what we see the Israelites trying to do throughout our entire Old Testament is they're trying to work their way. They're trying to do sacrifices. They're trying to abide by the law. They're trying to do all the things necessary in order for them to be able to get back into God's presence. But ultimately, the law was not meant to be the bridge to get us to God. Rather, the law is put into place, as we see in Romans 3, that it was actually there to reveal to us the fact that we're sinners and that we can't perfectly follow the law. That we can't do it. That we can't ultimately attain our way via good works to get to Him. And so He has to send a Savior. He has to send a perfect person in order to ultimately live out the life that we're supposed to live. To be able to abide by the rules and the law that God established. And Jesus Christ becomes that person when He's born of a virgin. Why did He have to be born of a virgin? Because the seed of sin is passed down from father to children. That's why it's able to say in the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians that through Adam all have sinned. All have sinned. Because up until this point, everyone's been, been, been literally birthed from a father and a mother. And so the seed of sin is passed down so that everyone is infected by this virus of sin that we have. Everyone's infected. Everyone's born this way. All right? you're, not, you're not born good and then eventually you become bad when you start to kind of figure it out in your own mind what it looks like to lie and deceive and do those things. Just go upstairs, watch our toddler classroom. You'll see they're born sinners. All right? The way that they rob from each other and take from each other and fight with each other. Like they're born sinners, okay? It's, it's passed down from us to them. But Jesus is different. Because Jesus doesn't come from an earthly father. He comes from the Holy Spirit in an immaculate conception where God grants conception to Mary in order for her to birth Jesus so that He can become fully man while also remain fully God. And because of that, He is able to come in unstained by sin and live out the perfect life in which He never does anything wrong. He never has a wrong thought. He never has a wrong action. He never does a wrong deed. Everything that He's supposed to do, He does. Everything that He's not supposed to do, He doesn't. He lives perfectly and therefore earns for us righteousness. Because according to God, when He looks at Him, He sees, a perfectly pleased son of his. And then Jesus Christ goes to a cross as we celebrated on, on Friday night, Good Friday. He goes to a cross and he dies the death. Why does he die the death? He dies the death because when we sin, God set it up. What did he say in the garden? If you sin, you will surely die. And we see that in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So the wages... Of sin, the payment of sin is death. And so, this perfect person who's never sinned goes to a cross and he dies on the cross, absorbing, taking 
all of our sin, for those who trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, He takes your sin and He places it on Himself, and the wrath of God looks at Jesus on the cross, and the wages, the payment for our sin, goes straight to Jesus, and He absorbs it and He pays it in full. And He dies the death that we deserved. And the beautiful thing that we're celebrating today is that on the third day, what the resurrection tells us is that God was fully satisfied with Christ's payment of death. He was fully satisfied. Jesus, you can now resurrect back to life because the death has been paid, and it's paid in full. You don't have to remain dead anymore. And neither do those who trust and believe that you are the Son of God and that you are the Messiah and that you are the Chosen One, that you are the One sent to fulfill all of the Jewish customs and law and traditions. You are the Messiah. You're the One that they've been waiting for for thousands, hundreds of years. You've come and you fulfilled it. Therefore, resurrect and be the first fruits of the resurrection. Which means for those who trust in Him, we too will, one again, we will rise like Christ has risen. He didn't rise back to a mortal, vulnerable body. He rose to an immortal, undiable, beautifully indestructible, glorified body. And we will get one of those too. And I know there's a lot of amens in this room when it comes to that. And then what that ushers us into from redemption to consummation is this age of the church where it's the spread of this good news. The spread of this good news. And at the end of the consummation, what we see is Christ returning. Christ returning on a white horse to get all of us who trust and believe in Him. And we will then rule and reign with Him for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. No sin. No pain. No tears. No pandemics. None of those things. No more hindered relationships. No more having to read the Word of God via written language. We have access to the Word of God, Jesus Christ Himself. No more praying with the Holy Spirit interceding for us on our behalf in order to communicate with God. We're there in unhindered presence. And so in this meta-narrative, where Paul finds himself when he's sharing this message in Acts chapter 22, where he's preaching... Jesus enters into that meta-narrative story while Jesus is on the right hand of the throne of God. And He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if Jesus is at the right hand of God, how can Saul be persecuting Jesus? Who is He actually persecuting? Who is He persecuting? We can talk back in this one. People, Christians, yeah. He was persecuting Christians. And yet Jesus says, you're persecuting me. So how does that work itself out? And I think it works itself out in the way that he refers to himself when he answers this question. Paul says, who are you, Lord? In Acts chapter 22, verse 8. And Jesus says this to him. I am Jesus Christ. 
of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. This is where I want to take this big message, and I want to get real personal with each one of you today. Jesus shouldn't have said that. From a cultural perspective, and from who he is, he shouldn't have said that. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't have said that in the sense of like, let me tell you what you should have said. He'd been raised from the dead. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven above and loving every minute of it. Why give Nazareth even a thought? Why give Nazareth a thought? Yes, like he was born in Bethlehem, which is in the south. Nazareth is this like Podunkville small town on the north where he actually grew up. And so he's able to refer to himself as I'm from Nazareth. It's my hometown. It's where I grew up. It's kind of like me saying I was born in Nashville, but I'm actually from White House, Tennessee. That's where I grew up. Podunkville, rural Tennessee. That's where I'm from. But I don't go around telling people that. When I, when I, when I meet you, I don't say I'm Dwayne from White House, Tennessee. Because it doesn't benefit me in any way to say that. If anything, you're like, okay, that makes sense now. It makes sense. Usually when people say, where are you from? I say Nashville, because that carries a little bit more excitement to it. I love Nashville. It's beautiful. Country music. Most people don't go there for country music now. But people love Nashville. It's a, it's a great place. If you're ever in the market for a bachelorette party, apparently that's Bachelorette USA. But a lot of times I'm not going to say I'm from White House. Why does Jesus say I'm from Nazareth? Because according to the Scriptures... Jesus himself says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. That means when Jesus is actually visiting Nazareth, they mock him. They don't care about him. He has no honor there in his own hometown. Elsewhere, one of the disciples, Philip, is talking to his brother Nathaniel, and he says, Jesus is from Nazareth. And so he's trying to like share with his brother Nathaniel, we've met the Messiah, it's the Christ, it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what he's going to do. He's awesome. I want you to come follow him. And Nathaniel literally says scathingly, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The early Christians were sneered at as the sect of the Nazarenes. It was like, if you're going to do the ultimate diss, just refer to them as the group that's following that guy that's from Nazareth. That's going to ruin all credibility. No one's going to want to follow them or jump on this team. But yet, this is exactly what Jesus does. Why does He also say, for that matter, I'm Jesus of Indianapolis? Or I'm Jesus of your hometown? Or I'm Jesus of wherever it is that you spend a lot of time? The resurrection on Easter Sunday was God the Father saying to Jesus, yes, your atoning work really is finished and I'm going to apply that atoning work personally to anyone who's willing to receive it and trust it and believe it no matter what their background is, no matter where they're from, no matter what their mess looks like, no matter their sin, no matter their situation, no matter their education, no matter their skin color, no matter any of those things, I'm going to step in and I'm going to reside. I'm going to dwell. I'm going to, as the song sounds, live in them. 
This is really the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given when Jesus is born and they give Him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is taking it a step further. It's not just God leaving heaven and coming to earth as the first missionary. This is God leaving heaven, coming to earth to live within you, to take up residence in your heart. This is Him leaving and rolling back the stone, leaving the empty tomb, and coming and rolling away the stone of your heart and entering into the empty tomb that is you. Because as the Scriptures say, we are dead in our transgressions. We are dead in our sins. We're the ones that are in the tomb. And as He exits His tomb, as He leaves His space and His place, He comes to your space and your place, and He rolls away that heart of stone, as the Scriptures say. And He gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us a new life. He gives us Himself, and He takes up residence there. So that now, I am Jesus of Nazareth, is saying that I'm not overlooking anything that is considered to be demeaning. Or worthless. And I think so many times this is the accusation of Satan. This is the accusations of the enemy. Is that you're worthless. Is that Jesus is never going to spread His good news to you. That Jesus is not going to look at you in order to offer forgiveness for you. You're not educated enough. You've not done anything good enough. You've not followed any of the the, uh, Old Testament laws. Which again, are 613 of them. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It goes beyond that. And if we're even looking at just the Ten Commandments, we're having a hard time, right? Just take a few of them. Like, don't lie. Case closed. We're all sinners. And even if we were to say, let's, let's, let's really buckle down. Let's really get disciplined. I'm going to devote my life to making sure I do all of them correctly. And let's say by the time you're 73 years old, You're able to go a day in which you don't sin. Great job. You still got 72 years behind you of collateral damage of sin that you're going to be held accountable for. Right? I'm not saying it's not worth it. (laughs) There's still this aspect of when Jesus comes and lives within us, That we now have the ability to uphold the law, as Romans 3.21 tells us. It gives us a framework for how we love God and love others. But it is not the thing that earns our salvation. Jesus comes into this story and He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I'm Jesus of Dwayne Gibbs. I'm Jesus of Virginia Salata. I'm Jesus of Greg Wright. I am Jesus of you because here's the thing, the way places and spaces throughout the Old Testament have worked and functioned is that there are these temporary places where Jesus or God comes into the scene to have His presence dwell. We have temples. We have synagogues. We have the Ark of the Covenant. But again, no one really had access, right? And it wasn't until on Friday when he died, that veil in the temple, that curtain that had God's presence on one side and the priest on the other side 
We can't go there. We're not holy enough. Again, we've not done anything law-based that allows us to be in His presence. We're not righteous enough. But at Jesus' death, righteousness, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, on that cross He became sin for us. So that, we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God. It's called the great exchange. Jesus on the cross became you and me. And He paid our debt. So that we, when Jesus leaves that tomb and He looks at you, and when we trust in Him, we believe in Him, He is who He says He is. He did what He said He did. He takes up residence within us. And we become one with Christ so that when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that veil is torn because this righteousness that gets imputed to us, this righteousness that gets deposited to us, given to us freely as a gift, when it is given to us, gives us full access into the presence of God. Full access. So that it now changes for us every place that we reside. There's nowhere you go that Christ is not there. There's nowhere you visit that Christ is not visiting with you. And this changes everything for us on a daily basis. Because when we think about places and spaces, there might be things that that come up in your mind Like, for example, if you do go to your hometown and you do visit, it might have different meanings for you when you see your old home that you grew up in. For some, it might be a very pleasant experience if you were brought up in a great home. For others, it might be like Forrest Gump's girlfriend, Jenny, where she's throwing rocks at it and falling to her knees because of the abuse that she experienced in her home. For others, I mean, for me, like this last Christmas when I went to visit just back home in Tennessee, it was this weird experience for me where I just felt depressed. (laughs) Just depressed. Not because White House is Podunkville. I mean, where they like call Walmart Walmarts. They just don't know the S is silent. But White House, I think the more that I'm distanced from it, the more I just realize that, like, it is not my identity. It's not my identity. It was growing up there, because I could get away with anything in that town. (laughs) But now when I go back, it's just, it's not my home. My home is where Christ is. And that's why Indianapolis for us is more home to us than anything that I've ever felt because of what the gospel is doing, not only in my life, but in this city, as we are trusting and following Christ. It's why we're able to walk through incredible, difficult trials, sufferings. It's why I'm able to look at the front entrance that I pull into every single day And know that two years ago, a guy tried to stab me twice at that front entrance. I'm able to drive by that entrance every single day and not have it haunt me. Because I know as I'm driving by it, Christ is telling me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
that I am walking with you, that I'm driving with you, that when we pull into this, we can rejoice together because death does not hold you. There's nothing to fear. I've conquered death. I've defeated sin. All that we experience on a daily basis that we walk into Christ residing in us and living among us is giving us hope not only in the moment, but also telling us that this place and this space is temporary. It's temporary. You will experience trials in very difficult situations. I mean, you just go through the list of the apostles. These first 12 followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're talking getting beheaded. Getting hung on a cross upside down. We're talking getting boiled alive. Thrown into prisons and jail cells. I mean, it is not prosperity gospel. It is not Jesus gives you health, wealth, and all things good. What He does give you is His presence residing in you no matter what you're experiencing. And that His presence in you is enough. It's enough. Jesus leaves an empty tomb. He goes to heaven to sit on a throne But in a supernatural thing called the gospel, applied by the Holy Spirit, he's on a throne while also on the throne of our hearts. And he takes up residence within you. This is why if you start reading John 14, 15, it starts to use language that he abides in us as we abide in him. It's an intermingling of souls. That we can't go anywhere without Jesus. And He's not going to let us go anywhere without Him. And that's the beauty that we have. That's the hope that we have. That's what the resurrection guarantees for us is that when He rose from the grave, He's not a distant king back on a throne. He's a king that comes into your shack of a temple. And He's renovating it. He's renovating. I love what... C.S. Lewis has to say about what Christ is doing in your little hoopty of a temple. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what He is doing. He's getting the drains right and He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised by them. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts miserably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting an extra floor there. He's running up towers over here. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he tends to live in it himself. It's not easy becoming the kingdom of Christ. But it does mean this. The place that you are is the place where God is. The place where you are is the place where God is. And therefore, with Christ leaving his empty tomb, entering your empty tomb, you are holy ground.
your holy ground. And that gives us reason on this Easter Sunday to worship. To worship. As we see in, in Luke 24, these women, when they see Jesus, they fall at His feet. And they worship Him. They worship Him. If we truly meditate on what happened on Easter, on that first Sunday in first century Jerusalem, if we really think about it, there is no better response than for us to literally just let everything in our life right now just fade away and just see Jesus as the perfect, risen Son of God who has not only removed our sin, but He has forgiven us and He's wiped our slate clean. Past, present, future. He already sees what you're going to do tomorrow that's messed up. He's wiped it all clean and has not only invited us into His presence, but he's also knocked down the door and has just moved in. And he's in our presence. And that gives us unhindered access to worship him every moment of every day. And let's start now. Let's start now. If you're in this room and, 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 and this hasn't happened for you, you might have thought Jesus was a great teacher. You might have thought Jesus was, yes, who we kind of go and hear some things about on Easter and Christmas, his birth and his resurrection. But for you, it hasn't gotten personal enough to where it's, has he dealt with my sin? Have, have I come to the understanding that my sin was placed on him at the cross and that I trust and that I believe God that he paid for my sin at the cross and that then Jesus rose from the grave Guaranteeing that He will also raise me and that He will give me new life. If you've never made that, 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 that profession of faith, if you've never trusted in Him and believed in Him as the Son of God who actually did this, then this is an opportunity for you today to say, yeah, I, I want to receive that. I want to trust in this. I want to believe the gospel. I want to believe the good news. This is good news. I've never saw it as good news, but this is good news. I was a sinner and now I can become a saint. I can become holy ground. Jesus resides in me. I want that. This is an opportunity for you to receive that. Trust and believe it. And, and that's it. it. This isn't having to clean yourself up. This isn't having to pretend you're something that you're not. It's just being aware. I'm a sinner. And he is not. I trust Him and I believe in Him. I don't want to bank on my own efforts. I can't even pay my bills on time. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to bank on my own efforts. I want to bank on Jesus and what He did. And so I put trust there. I put faith there. I, I believe Him. And then we worship. We worship. And this brings us to our time of communion. Underneath your chairs, you're going to see a little package with a wafer and a juice. This represents for us everything that happened on Friday. 
This represents for us exactly what Jesus had to do in order for us to stand here today doing what we're doing right now. Because without Friday, there is no resurrection. There is no resurrection. He had to die. And He broke His body and He shed His blood. Again, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus, even in the garden, as He's praying before He goes to the cross, in the garden, He's praying, Man, if there's, Lord, if there's any other option, <laughs> there's any other option, please let this cup pass from Me. But Your will be done, not Mine. What Jesus is not doing there is asking God to just sweep it under the rug. He's just revealing the fact that He is also 100% fully human. And He's experiencing every possible anxiety, anguish, pain. He's bearing the weight of our shame and guilt. And as a 100% human, it is overwhelming to Him and He is crying out to His Father. If there's any other possibility, please let this cup pass. But then knowing also that He's 100% God, there is no other way. And He submits to the plan that's been in place since that very first sin in the Garden of Eden when God comes and preaches the first Gospel and He tells the serpent that the seed or the offspring that will come from the woman will crush your head as you bruise His heel. And that is the picture of Jesus. Bruises are temporary. Jesus dying on the cross is Jesus crushing the head of Satan. Once and for all. But it also is at the cost of Him dying. Breaking His body and shedding His blood. And so communion is us entering into that moment in time where we worship Jesus by thanking Him for offering His body and shedding His blood so that you don't have to. You don't have to. We get life because of His death. And so right now, what I want us to do is I want us to partake of this communion. Remember Jesus. Worship Jesus. And then be filled, just like when you eat a meal and you're full at the end of it. This is a meal for our soul that when we partake of Christ, that it fills us up because we are also, as new believers Christians, we are resurrected with Christ on that Sunday. And we are raised to a new life. Shame and guilt, all of it is gone. Raised to walk in the newness of life with Him. That's what we're celebrating in this communion. So let's partake together and then the band's going to come up and we're going to continue just worshiping Jesus. Because He is risen and He is our Savior. And there will be a day when He comes back to get all of us. And to reign and rule with Him for eternity. But until then, we're going to worship Him now. We're going to worship Him tomorrow. 
And as we're in this meta-narrative age of the church, we're also going to continue to just spread this good news. Spread this good news. He's with you. He's always with you. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. So tomorrow, take Jesus with you to work. Take Jesus with you to your neighborhood. Take Jesus with you to your family. Take Jesus with you wherever you go and share His good news that He has provided for us. Let's continue on in worship. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at